Hi, and welcome to Fast Talk Femme with Dee Dee Barry and Julie Young. Our guest on this episode is Tom Schuler, a former American professional cyclist who rode for Team 7-Eleven in the 1980s. Tom represented the U.S. in the 1976 and 1980 Olympic Games, and he's the founder of Team Sports, a sports management company that focused on cycling, mountain biking, triathlon, and rollerblading. Tom has managed several successful professional teams, including Team Saturn Road Cycling Team, Volvo Cannondale Mountain Bike Team, Timex Women's Cycling and Triathlon Teams. Tom was a pioneer in starting and managing women's professional teams that had relative gender equity. And more recently, he's been organizing and managing events, such as the Tour of America's Dairyland and Intelligentsia, which are multi-day criterium series that attract a diverse demographic of cyclists. Thoughtful and down-to-earth, Tom has been one of American cycling's greatest advocates for decades. Julie and I were very fortunate to have raced for Tom's teams during our careers and benefited greatly from the opportunities he provided. Our discussion with Tom will focus on his work in advancing racing and professional opportunities for women in endurance sport. Tom, welcome to Fast Talk Femme, and thank you for joining us today. Hey, listeners. If you've been listening to Fast Talk for a while, you've probably heard a few of my hot weather racing stories. Like the time I tricked a rival team into feeding me some of their water bottles. Stories like those show how critical it is to beat the heat and stay hydrated. In our new pathway, we explore exercise in the heat. We show how to manage heat, dial in hydration, and fuel for performance in hot conditions. This new pathway taps Dr. Stephen Chung, the internationally recognized expert in thermal physiology, and sports scientists Rob Pickles, Lindsay Golich, Dr. Steven Seiler, plus Ryan Kohler and myself. This pathway busts myths and reveals science-based best practices for beating the heat. Topics include rider body types, mental strategies, sports drink salinity, drinking versus dousing, muscle cramping, which is one of my favorites, and you'll learn why taking electrolytes might not make a difference. Plus, we talk about getting acclimated, drink to thirst, and how heat affects sports nutrition. Take a look at our new Exercise in the Heat pathway at FastTalkLabs.com. Tom, it was great to connect with you last week at Toad. Tom organizes a Criterium series that's been very popular in the Midwest for at least the last 30 years. It was a series that got me introduced to cycling from a young age. And it was a real pleasure seeing you and Jim Okowitz, and it made me reflect on how I first met you and Jim, which was in 1988. I had crashed at the Junior World Championships in Denmark, and I'd done pretty well in the pursuit that year, and, and Jim invited me to join 7-Eleven. And I met you and Jim at the, at the warehouse in 1988, the 7-Eleven team warehouse, and uh, It was really neat to see you two together again a few years later. I appreciate you joining us today, and I'm looking forward to picking your brain and getting some insight on where you're at with things. Absolutely. Really happy to be here to uh, reminisce and think in a forward-looking view as to what's next, too. So, Tom, Julie and I had the pleasure of riding for the Saturn professional team in the 1990s with you. And at that point, I felt like you were a real trailblazer in in the cycling world, at least, because it was really the only program at the time that had a highly professional men's and women's team that were more or less equitable, at least in terms of support, maybe not necessarily salaries. But I was curious as to what your motivation was to form a women's team along the men's Saturn team, because I think the men's team existed for a couple years prior to the women's team starting up. Actually, the women's team... And I think Julie was a founding member of the women's team. Yep, I sure was. You yep. and Jeannie Golay and uh, uh, Jessica Greco, yep. I think. And I think that was 94 season. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So I retired off the 7-Eleven team. 90 was my last year. I kind of worked with the Motorola team with Oach and Jim Okowitz in 91. Of course, 7-Eleven had had a very strong, you were part of it, Didi, a very strong women's program. But when we, when 7-Eleven went through bankruptcy, we had to shrink the team to just a men's team. So Motorola never had a women's component, right? In 92, I started a separate, Oach and I started a separate company to look at other sports like mountain bike, 
And lo and behold, rollerblade came away. So we had a, and then I, Oach and I split up. So we had a rollerblade team and all of a sudden mountain biking was growing. And the thing I liked about mountain bike was it was very much a, a level playing field for the, the women and the men as it related to support, salaries, publicity, prize money, how the sport was presented, right? And that's completely different from road cycling, right? Road cycling has been around forever for men, right? As a men's sport. And it's much like football is, is one of those old school sports as a men's sport. So cycling is the equivalent of, you know, in, in Europe, where it's, where it's been a sport forever, is the equivalent of uh, football is here. Or basketball. It's a little harder for to all of a sudden say everything should be the same for women as it is for men. But mountain bike started at zero for both genders, right? So when mountain bike started, it started in America in, in the 80s, and it was started from zero. So Julie Furtado was presented the same way. Missy Giovi was presented the same way as Ned Overend, right? So I kind of saw that as I stepped back from, as I stepped back from road cycling and I had the opportunity to start the Volvo Cannondale team, mountain bike, equal platform for men and women, the same year the Saturn team started. And I don't want to take the credit for having the idea of the women's team, but the minute Saturn said, what about women? I like, you know, just busted through the door and I got three women up and running. Julie, it was very late in the game. I don't know when, when we, when they asked me and when we made that happen, but we only had budget. We only had time. You know, this was throwing it together where the Saturn men's team was already up and running for two years. So there was carryover. There was, you know, some equipment, there was some personnel, that kind of stuff. So again, I don't want to take credit for the idea, but I do want to, I will take credit for knowing it was the way I wanted to go forward with that team the minute the sponsor thought about the idea. And all of a sudden, Saturn was selling cars now for maybe five years. All of a sudden, all their data showed that their buyers were skewing female. You know, they, they weren't sure where the brand position would be, but all of a sudden, you know, 45%, 48%, 52%, somewhere up around 60%, maybe even higher of their customers were female. So now it's a no-brainer. As you guys know, by the late 90s, that team lasted under my management for 10 years. We brought on some Europeans and we were the UCI number one ranked team, the women's team. And the men's team was a, a good domestic team, but we weren't going to compete even though Saturn never sold cars in Europe, they were willing. I took them about as far as they could go with the women's program because they weren't ever selling cars in Europe, but we were racing quite a bit in Europe with, with Ina Tutenberg and Anna Wilson. Didi, I think you weren't, weren't on the team anymore at that point. I can't remember. I, yeah, I raced in Europe quite a bit with the team, kind of from, I guess, 95 till 2000. Okay. I was there. Yeah. So you were on that team with Anna Wilson yep. and yeah. uh, Ina and, yeah. and uh, Petra. I think uh, Ina maybe came just after I, I left the team. But, but Petra yeah. was there, I'm sure. Yeah, and Petra I was, I think yeah. you went over to um, T-Mobile, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I took a gap a couple of years and then right. raced with T-Mobile. Yeah. So long-winded answer. And, you know, we did what we could. And, Dee, I think you correctly identified. We tried to present the men's and women's team equally. We tried to give equal support in the only area where that wasn't the case. And I'll give you some good examples with Volvo Cannondale. But with Saturn is in the salary uh, environment. You know, you pay, you pay the market rate and we paid well, but we're still paying the market rate at the time. Tom, that's a really interesting point you bring up about mountain biking and kind of it's a clean slate and starting at zero. So there was no precedent set in that how like cycling was kind of bogged down in the tradition. So, you know, in addition to Saturn, you you also started and ran the, the Timex women's team when there were very few pro women's teams. Can you tell us about your motivation in starting that team? Yeah, I mean, it's, I didn't actually start it. It was a holdover called Canadale Seiko. 
you might remember, and it was under the management of Mark Gorski and the, the their management company out of San Francisco through Cannondale, because Cannondale was connected with U.S. Pulse. So I can't remember all the connections. And um, quite frankly, they wanted to focus more on their men's team. The I think it was called Postal or Montgomery at the time. And um, I was already working with Cannondale through Volvo Cannondale, so it was a natural fit. And um, I was already working with Timex, but they really were interested in a, a women's cycling team because they were launching all their um, heart rate products, all their heart rate products. And they thought the women's platform might be a better platform for their products as opposed to a men's team. I don't know. I don't think they even looked at things like what it would cost to support a men's team. I think they just thought they wanted to go to market with women wearing their products than, more than men. And then we inherited the Seiko. So we hit Timex was new money to that team. And then we had Seiko and we also had Cannondale. So that was the support level. And I think that team lasted for about six years. You know, Linda Jackson was a part of that team. Um, Gianna Roberge was a part of that team. You would remember the, all the, the members more than I would because you competed against them. And I think Didi was retired by then for the second time. No. Nah. 90, was it 98? Because I, I actually rode with them in 98, 2000. Okay. Who was the director then on that team? Mike Neal. Mike Neal, I yeah. I think. And you guys, you guys punched above your weight mostly because of Mike Neal. I'll give you, I'll give you the riders some credit, but Mike always brought out the best in almost any athlete he worked with. Yeah, we had a really fun team dynamic. And it was, yeah, Mike set that precedence. You guys took it to the Saturn team that I had a bigger budget more than once. And um, from the outside looking in, people thought there was some sort of collusion between the teams, you know, like <laughs> between Mike Neal and if it was Renee Wenzel, I can't remember who the who was directing the, the women's team. So Timex was only a women's team. Saturn was a men and women's team. So the only time they went head to head was on the women's platform. And they, you know, I would get all kinds of comments. There was all kinds of collusion, you know, from John Warden or something. And nothing was further from the truth because I always believe that, you know, competition breeds better performance, right? So we wanted, I wanted, you know, competition between those teams. And, and I think we got it. It's interesting to me to hear you say about like Saturn and Timex, those companies kind of driving that, or I guess women being the main market for them or trying to capture that market. So I think it's interesting how running, like if I think if you look at the statistics, it's it's majority women, like that market, yet it seems like it's always been hard for cycling to capture the women's market. I think obviously different things in play. It seems to me that road cycling has always been intimidating for women. And it seems like it's always been a, a tough sell. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my mind was going there when we were talking about some of the gravel events because Dee Dee saw that our numbers, our, our pro-women's numbers at Tour of America's Dairyland and another event I promoted earlier in the spring in Iowa, a road event, are way down this year across the board. And I really think a lot of women have chosen to, a lot of the good women that would be racing in the pro one too, have chosen to try some gravel, mix some gravel in. And we had the, the professional U.S. championship in Knoxville on our second weekend. And Dee, that's why our numbers were down when the juniors were racing. In the first weekend, we had pretty healthy numbers. But if you take, there were 70 pro one, two women down in Knoxville, there aren't enough women at that level to even support a second race, a second quality race on the road right now. Or, or you know, there might have been a race in California. I don't know. But I think a lot of women are, in that case, are saving up for the gravel race, saving up for the gravel race. You know, everyone has limited time, limited uh, financial resources, and coming to Toad is a big commitment. So there were a few sort of beginning you know, future star women that I tried to get to know a little bit at Toad to understand why they were here and not going to pursue gravel, you know, that kind of thing. But that's that's my own theory. That's entirely me. I own all my uh, race promoter, um, you know, peers are trying to, colleagues are trying to figure out the same thing because across the board, the numbers have been way down this year. I mean, 
five years ago, and I think, Dee Dee, that's one of your questions we're going to talk about. Five years ago, at, at 10 years ago at Toad, we had 80 women every day. Five years ago, we probably had 60 women. You know, it's been a slow decline. And I think, you know, gravels could be intimidating, the group riding, the crashes. The mechanical aspect is the same, whether you're on right. gravel or whether you're on the road, you know? In fact, it's yeah. lessened on the road because you have pits and mechanics around, whereas you're on your own. But, you know, there's sort of that, um, it's more inclusive, I think, on the gravel and sort of supportive. You know, if you have a flat tire, you're going to get help. You know what I mean? So maybe yeah. that takes away that intimidation factor. Yeah, I mean, that would be my assumption as well. I think now we just have so many different options. And I feel like gravel is so much more inviting, like we were chatting about these different events and, you know, different distances. And it really does kind of create this experience. You know, you go to these cool places and you camp and, you know, I think that's appealing to, to women and just, you know, I think sometimes the road scene can seem really aggro and that's kind of a turnoff. I also think, and Didi and I have chatted about this, like cyclocross, that's such a cool entry point for women just because it's so playful and not huge distances. It's contained. You're not going to be left behind. There's not necessarily, you know, a sense like comparison where you're way off the back. You kind of can't tell where people are in those kind of events. And seems to me those are things that women gravitate toward. And of course, like the mountain biking, I think is also really popular with women. You know, you see this just women's groups, skills clinics or whatever. It just doesn't necessarily have to be competitive. Yeah, I, I would... I would definitely d agree with you on all those points, for sure. In contrast, as you know, Tom, I was at Toad with junior boys. And <laughs> for them, those crits are a real highlight. I mean, it's like a lottery win every time they win a preem, right? They're like so stoked. And I've always been a real advocate of criterium racing for development, as well as all the other disciplines in cycling. But we came away from last week. These kids, you know, went into the Pro 1-2 field feeling pretty intimidated and, uh, you know, losing the wheels through some of the turns. And by the end of the series, they were carving the turns and in breakaways, winning preems. And they had some of the older guys mentoring them, which was really nice to see. Justin Williams and, and Adam Meyerson really reached out and, and tried to help them throughout the week, which was super cool. But I think, you know, they're a really important part of USA Cycling's landscape in terms of development and, you know, definitely for the crowd experience. I, uh, I really like the vibe at those crits. It's really, really great to see the atmosphere there. Yeah, almost, almost every rider, as they move up the ranks, and even if they're a Cat 3, they seem to respond to crowds. I mean, that's not everyone, but most, most riders like crowds, right? And then we don't have enough road races. If you want to be a road racer, we don't have enough road races to only count on a diet of road races. So you're going to end up doing gravel. You're going to end up doing criteriums. And to your point, Didi, I've always believed there's numerous examples, men and women that go to Europe, get into the pro peloton, and they don't have the skills in the crosswinds. They don't have the skills in the tricky finishes. And that's what criterium racing is. You know, that's criterium racing is a necessary component to have all the skills you need in very tricky situations on the road. And, you know, whether you're a BMX racer or a mountain biker that switches to the road, I, I fully believe in, especially when you're young, to do all those things. You know, do, do them all is the best thing. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think that is a really good point you bring up, though, how it can really, they can complement each other. You know, if, if we have these, this lack of road racing, the gravel racing is great for that. It's kind of developing that diesel. And to your point, like the crits or that's, that snappiness, the skill, the handling. So it's really, that's a really great point that, that those two really do complement in terms of developing fitness and skills. I think like one of the other things that I really like about the crit racing and gravel racing as well is just that they attract a relatively diverse demographic of people and compared to other cycling disciplines, especially the road, which I think is super positive and it's good for the future of the sport. It brings new groups in. But why, why do you think it is that it attracts a wider demographic? Well, you mean uh, people of color? No, just... Generally, like age, color, women, men, like I, I do think it attracts, a, like if you look at at least road racing, you know, 
across the board has never been as diverse as criterium racing and gravel racing from my standpoint. Yeah, I don't, I, I haven't looked at it as gravel specifically or, or mountain bike. I don't, I don't think of mountain bike as being in, incredibly diverse, but this is a new, relatively new phenomenon in American racing because we have some really solid heroes starting, you know, from Rasan Bahati, Aisha McGowan, Justin Williams. So I think that helps a lot. And it's a city sport. It's a city activity. You know, it's an urban center activity. And if you go to places like Washington, D.C., way higher percentage of people of color on road bikes, you know, New York City. And that's where there's, you know, clubs. And so I totally agree with you, Didi. There's the diversity that we're seeing people of color, male, female mix is all is all a really positive thing that's new. It's very new. I wanted to go back to a point about development and specifically the EF Onto kids and not using them, but given a, a situation that happened with us. So there was a, a kid that won the um, the best amateur jersey in the men's category. Grace Arnitson won the best amateur in the women's for the whole 11 days. She was in the green. She's with the automatic team. She's a swimmer that came over to cycling. She started during the pandemic and she's going to She's going to give it like two years to see how far she can go. And she's, I'm, I think she's going to go after the road, but not dirt. But on the men's side, it was this um, Cat 3, and he upgraded right before Toad. Um, in fact, I think he raced and did well or won a race in the two threes as a three, and then he upgraded to twos. And the first two days, he found himself like in the, in the green amateur jersey, you know, the best amateur jersey in the two threes. And usually that's someone who's in like 20th place overall, typically, because our fields are pretty good, as you know, mostly crit racers, but some road racers. This kid's name is Riley Reitzman, and he happens to be from Wauwatosa. And his, on day three, his dad came up to me and he said, hey, Tom, I, I know his dad a little bit. He's a Nike racer. He and his sister do Nike. And he came up and he said, hey, Riley's got a bit of a predicament. He's having such a great time at Toad, but we're signed up for a USA cycling mountain bike camp in Crested Butte or somewhere, somewhere in Colorado that starts in two days. And we were going to leave like tomorrow to go to that. And he really wants to stay at Toad. And as a parent, you know, the two good options, you've probably paid for the, the family trip to Colorado, you know, is already booked and all that. And um, I thought about it for a while and I said, well, how's he feeling about it? What I didn't talk to Riley Unfortunately, but his, I think his dad was pretty uh, straightforward and honest. He didn't try to steer me towards what he wanted the kid to do. And he basically said, well, he's really enjoying this. And he's he wants to stay for another day or two. And I said, well, you know, when a kid wants to do something themselves versus their parent telling them they should do something, and that's, you know, the kid's motivation and direction, that's the most powerful thing. And it's not a bad option to stay and do another six days of criterium racing because those are all skills that are going to apply to his mountain bike career should he choose to go in that direction. So again, great opportunity. He's in the leader's jersey. He hadn't planned to race here beyond the first four days. And it's like with your your son and the Anto kids, you know, if they want to be pursuiters, you know, that's where they're going to get the most out of it. If they want to do criteriums and they love cream hunting and whatever they're doing, they're going to learn the most. A coach then, you know, listens to the aspirations and kind of holds up a mirror and basically says, oh, you, you want to ride criteriums, you know, or you want to stay at Toad and not go to the mountain bike event. When someone has their own direction and they don't need a lot of prodding, Julie, I'm sure you found that yourself as a coach, you know? Well, and I think Didi and I have had this conversation with Ashlyn and just how just exposing kids to just all these different options, because you just never know what's going to float their boat. And I think that's by far the most important ingredient is that they love what they're doing. But again, like you all have said this, but everything they're doing, they're developing different skill set and it's all going to, you know, play into their favor, whatever direction they go. So I think it's it's excellent and you know you just you do think about like how they do interplay and that you know our best our best road cyclists 
now, like they're really, most of them did come from mountain biking. And so I think it's just keep, keep that door open for the kids and expose them to all those different opportunities. The one thing I also wanted to mention, I'm not sure we said this, when we say toad for the listeners, we're speaking of Tom's Tour of America Dairyland race, 11-day series. Tour of America's Dairyland. Every good product needs a good acronym, right? So Yeah, definitely. We realize toad, <laughs> you know, it's not what you call your event. It's what other people call your event. And they, they refer to it as toad. Hi, listeners. We're so excited that you're here to check out Fast Talk Femme a new podcast series that's all about the female endurance athlete. Here at Fast Talk Labs, we pride ourselves on being the pioneers of information and education in the endurance sports world for both athletes and coaches. If you like what you hear today, check out more at fasttalklabs.com. We spoke a little bit earlier about kind of the evolution of women's cycling and how like The 1984 Olympics obviously spurred this period of growth that kind of happened through the 90s. And then I feel like the beginning of the 2000s, there was like a bit of a dip, women's cycling. And and then there's been a real resurgence at the World Tour pro level. I think probably less so on the road and criterium racing level in the States, but definitely on the World Tour level, there's been a huge resurgence in the last, you know, two years even. But I... I kind of want to get your take on, like, from your experience, what do you feel like draws more women to cycling? And, like, what makes it exciting and animated for, like, women who are spectators of the sport? Like, what do you feel like it is that draws them in and makes them want to try it? I guess I didn't always know the path of, uh, like, Julie Young when she came to the Saturn team. I knew uh, Dee Dee Demet's path a little bit better because she was from Milwaukee. But as soon as, you know, Julie, you ended up on the team, I tried to understand your background. I know you were uh, a collegiate athlete. I believe you were a golfer. Yes, that's right. But I tried to understand, like, where especially our women athletes came from. And they, they all come from another sport. Female cyclists at that time all participated in other sports. And they got to the end of their collegiate days or whatever could have been at the end of high school. Mostly it was at the end of college. So they're coming into road cycling late and they were runners. We had gymnasts, you know, every other sport, but I try to understand their background and that helped me understand is it a team sport is an individual sport. We had soccer players. It wasn't like that with the men because they started concentrating on cycling at a much younger age. The most successful ones when they were juniors, right? And later on, we got more male cyclists that came through the collegiate ranks, collegiate road cycling. And now, like Julie said, we get a lot of top of our top talent, men and women, that come through NICA and then through collegiate ranks. And the very best ones have already sometimes can't go to college because they've already left for the, the show, road or mountain. I'm too far away from that to know where the path typically is because I know where the path I have a sense of where that path was in the 80s and the 90s. But I do agree with you, Didi. I think the USA, as far as a dip, and I think that dip is more, we felt the dip in America because 84 Olympics, Connie Carpenter won the first, I think, ever cycling gold medal in any discipline in cycling. There were two Olympic medals awarded, road and pursuit, I think. And it just grew from there, Didi, until 2002. You won a silver medal, I believe, right? 2004, yeah. 2004. <laughs> so again, that's that incredible growth. In American cycling, the rest of the world wasn't there yet. The world tour, the Dutch women weren't were coming on now, but they weren't so dominant then. We were more comparable. Maybe the corporate backing wasn't as strong then. It was maybe directed more off-road. And now that the rest of the world, Australia, Germany, certainly Holland, Italy, France, when you look at the strength of all these countries in women cycling, except for the Dutch women, it's a pretty balanced scene. When I saw that question, I said, what have I thought about women cycling? I like watching women cycling on television, and there's a lot of it on television. And I liken it to women's tennis is just as exciting as men's tennis, right? They sometimes volley longer. I can't speak to golf because I don't watch golf. But uh, women's tennis is just as exciting as men's tennis because they sometimes volley longer. 
you can't tell if the serve's going, you know, 10 miles an hour less on the women's serve. It, it's still exciting action. They're diving for the ball. And it's the same way with cycling. And the women's cycling, some of the races, I watched the Italian Women's Road Championship where Trek Segafredo, just the other day, where Trek Segafredo had a battle with a couple other riders. And it was like one of the most exciting races I ever saw. So as a fan, and maybe as a sponsor, you realize this is just as exciting as the men. Now, you know, the women don't have as big of a platform. They have the Tour de France, but it's not the Tour de France. So it's it's gaining. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing that's really happening with women cycling right now, is the, the television product is so much better now than Didi when you raced. A, there was no women's television product, and the men's product was okay, you know, but now the drones and the the, the motos that are in there and the, all the owners of these races realize their future is television because people in Japan can watch any race, any women's race, and that's really helping women's cycling. I know that many brands have chosen women's cycling because it's a much better return on their investment, you know, for $5 million they can have an amazing team right now. And again, the market will keep driving the salaries up, you know, as that continues to grow. So I, you know, I see a really bright future uh, right now for women's road cycling globally because of uh, television and what, what that's doing. And that's all different. You know, there's always been men's television, good quantity and quality, but um, the parity, I guess, is is coming up for the women's races too. And, and we're not seeing as all the the exact same coverage, but we're you know the the women's races are making up closing that gap a lot quicker. Tom, we we had the opportunity to interview Kate Verano, who is with Swift, and she's the one that's basically spearheaded that effort for Swift to sponsor the Tour de France Femme and Perry Roubaix Femme. And it was it's really interesting, you know, like she said, like it's it's not charity that they're they're sponsoring this. They're really seeing a return on investment. And, you know, I think it's neat that they're really taking the lead and showing other companies this is viable. You're, you're getting a huge return on investment. And again, it's not a, a charitable action. It's what Saturn discovered. It's what Timex discovered back in the 90s and the return on their investment and where they wanted to be. So it, it's a legitimate platform. But back to what Didi said, that platform doesn't exist in America. It doesn't exist really for the men either in America. It's really a global platform, and um, we want the American women to play play stronger in that league, you know? Because I think during your day, your guys' day on Saturn, Saturn was at the top of the heap globally, right? We were competing. We we're UCI number one team, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, winning the World Cups, and yeah. But I mean, also, there was a healthier road racing scene in North America in the 90s. I mean, I there were seasons on Saturn where I raced like 95 races. You know, they were maybe like half in Europe, half in the U.S., and a good mix of criteriums and road racing. Whereas, you know, I look at the landscape now, and in terms of the road, it seems like the majority of the opportunities are actually criteriums, not not road races anymore. Yeah, there are some road races. There's about six, Redlands being one of them, Joe Martin. You could say maybe Valley of the Sun, maybe... Tucson Bicycle Classic that are legitimate road races, but they're three and four day road races. You know, it's you might get more benefit to coming to the Tour of America Stairland from a development standpoint than doing a three day stage race. You know what I mean? So there, the opportunities you're right are not there. There aren't the you know the Orida Challenge, Core State. Like I loved Core State. That was one of my favorites. San Francisco GP. That was another good one. But I think, like, I, I mean, I've heard that a number of the road races got shut down because the, the cost of closing the roads got to be too high with the police hourly wages and whatnot. And do you think that's the main reason or are there other reasons that some of these classic races have gone away? I think that if the return on investment was there for the sponsors, the banks, whoever, you know, banks sponsored the core states forever, they would still be able to justify the expense. But yeah, the even back the San Francisco Grand Prix, that was in the Saturn days. That was, you know, 2000. That was already $350,000 of city cost to run that race. So the, the numbers were, were big back then, too. But certainly now it's much more difficult. You know, if a municipality sees the benefit of having a celebration of cycling, they will find a way to 
you know, discount the police services and that kind of thing. But yeah, clearly it's a lot less expensive to put on a criterion than it is to close down roads in Philadelphia. And that that's a big factor for sure. It's a huge, huge factor why road rates, you know, but in Europe they have similar costs, but somehow they it's worth it's worth it, right? The tradition, the spectatorship, all the elements that go into the sponsorship. So Tom, we've we've chatted a bit about just kind of road cycling struggling. I mean, what do you think is the answer to reinvigorate road cycling in the U.S.? So to me, you know, I always try to look at the glass half full aspect of a question like that. And more people are on bikes than ever. More people want to compete. More people want to do events. The road is never going to go away. Road racing is never going to go away. It will come back. You know, mountain bike was the popular discipline back in the 80s and 90s, even over road cycling. It's where, you know, as an American mountain biker, you could make more than on the road as an American road rider back then. All the car companies, all the bike brands were putting their money behind mountain bike. And quite frankly, a lot of that activity is going into gravel now. I don't, you know, I, I believe that... Um, gravels racing will cool off it's gonna it's another 10 years i believe we'll start to see a decline just like mountain bike and rollerblade and other things because when the people that are doing now kind of age out of that it's not cool for the next generation to do what that older generation did oh that was for those old people there'll be something else but road cycling's always going to be here and there's if if you put two people on on a road and on bikes, they're going to race and they're going to want to go to the Tour de France. So I don't really look at it as a doom and gloom. I look at it, if there's enough people wanting to do road racing, there'll be more promoters wanting to put on road races. And there just aren't enough people. And the bike brands give you all the statistics of where the bikes are, what bikes they're selling. And I think they're still selling the most amount of gravel bikes now, or the biggest growth area, or e-bikes, sorry, e-bikes now E-bikes are where the manufacturer's attention is right now because that's where the money is, where the sales are. But again, you know, road cycling is not going anywhere because there's something called RAGBRAI with 50,000 people on road bikes, you know, and and there's lots of events like that. So um, I definitely look at it like a glass half full. And there's a professional category that's very, very healthy right now on the men's and the women's. You know, the men's professional road cycling is very healthy. And, and women's is too. I, I think, to your point, D.D., I think there's been a resurgence because of the media, the access. So um, I'm optimistic, but we might, we're going to be in a, maybe a lull here for another 10 years relative to other things that people want to do on, to compete or to, to participate. What do you think about these initiatives? It seems like a lot of people that are trying to reinvigorate road cycling in the U.S. are really focused on that criterium type format. What do you think about the National Criterium League? Yeah, I mean, any new thinking and new money into the sport, I encourage. I think all boats eventually rise, but it's, you know, again, there has to be a return on investment. Our races, Tulsa Tough, Tulsa Tough's just like Toad, you know, Gateway's just like Toad. The better events are just like Toad. They are community celebrations of cycling. And they need to have a top-level race. But it's very community-driven. And what's the payoff for some of these other leagues? Is it going to be media? Because they might be better off to just make their media around the Tour of America's Dairylands and the Tulsa Tufts. Make that their platform because we already have crowds. We have activity versus building and, and the cost to build new events. So right now they're they're building new events. The NCL is building new events. They had one in Miami. They've got one scheduled in August for Den in Denver, one in Atlanta, I believe, and one in Washington, DC. And they're incredibly expensive. Their cost of doing business is much more expensive than all of us who are doing it. So if they can make it work for their investors and get that return on investment, I think it'll go somewhere. But you know, we don't know. It's too early to tell. So that's the NCL that's up and running. There's only two teams. There are four races and other teams are coming to race. Those two teams are also, they were at Toad. The Denver Disruptors were not at Toad, but the Miami Knights were at Toad. And they won, they, they went first and second in our American Criterium Cup. The American Criterium Cup is a series of 10 of the best races 
Athens, Georgia, Anniston, Tulsa, Toad, Salt Lake City, Boise, Twilight, Denver, Intelligentsia Cup, Momentum, Indianapolis, and Gateway. And those are really 10 events, just like Toad. And Dee Dee was just at Toad. She knows, she, she has, you know, she's been there the last couple of years and they're solid community events. So, Julie, I don't know. It, it's, I think, too early to tell. They are storytelling, like the Netflix show that just came out on the Tour de France, which I haven't watched yet. People are talking about a lot of storytelling and the series and that kind of thing, making it a, a storyline throughout the year. I just don't know if there's enough following in America to follow anything else but Tour de France right now, you know, from a media standpoint. Well, I'll tell you, just to be honest, I, I mean, I'm a huge, obviously, cycling fan. I love watching the coverage. I have GCN app. You know, I have it pretty much going like there's racing all the time. And I watched the first National Criterium League race and it was at Miami, did you say? Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I just I thought, wow, way too many rules. And I personally just did not find it appealing. And that's that's kind of saying something because I'm like a huge lover of the sport, a huge spectator of the sport. And I, I ended up just not watching the entire race. So I don't know. I, I just kind of wonder how it'll go. Well, I mean, I believe criterium racing is tough because, you know, when in road racing, you, sh- you know, the helicopters come in and there's a castle in the background and they they're going down this to des- descent and then they're going up climbs and there's, you know, the, the, there's more variety and criteriums are, is a repetitive activity. You know, and I think if you could make gravel racing exciting and affordable, we'd see gravel television, but they've tried, you know, they tried to do the lifetime series last year and they quickly threw in the towel. So cycling's at least criterium racing, you're mostly fixed cameras couple drones, but it's hard to make it exciting. I don't care. I don't, the best job in the world, Tulsa did a pretty good job, but it's very hard to make Criterium Racing exciting. It's it's better live, I think. Yeah, but I do think it is exciting, Tom, but I think the National Criterium League has like a whole set of different rules where they trade in, like there's a women's and men's team and like midway, they trade them in and I don't know. It was very different. There's a lot of different rules involved in in that particular league as opposed to your races. And I mean, personally, like I do think the criterium races are just, they're so spectator friendly and the energy level is so amazing. And to your point, like, I don't know if you watched the gravel world championships, but it was, I found it quite boring. Like, you know, and here's the world championships. And so you're right. I don't think that racing's necessarily that exciting. I mean, one thing I was thinking about is, as we've been chatting, you know, I worked with Harvey Nitz as a coach and uh, he and Tom Weitzel for a while were trying to get track leagues going. And I think that's so cool. Like in a good way, like, you, you know, you said, Tom, and I know Didi said this, like, you know, those tracks that are in those cities, those inner cities and, you know, to have like different, every city has a team and it's just, I don't know, it's so exciting and it's, it's contained. And I think it's just great for the spectators. Yeah. I mean, we all have different opinions. I grew up racing the track as much as the road. I grew up in Detroit. We had a velodrome and we did both disciplines equally. And, you know, as a cyclist, we go where the money is, right? There were no opportunities on, for me, I'm like Ashland, you know, if I could win a preem, that's where I'm going to go. There was no opportunity to race the track for me. And I was probably better suited as to be a track racer to, you know, just pursue points race or Madison's or whatever. But this is my own personal feeling. I think that the beautiful thing about cycling is we race anywhere. We race on gravel, we race on trails, we race on city streets. A velodrome is putting us in a stadium, you know. I don't want to be in a stadium. I want to be, you know, in the wilderness. I want to be on my mountain bike. I want to be bike packing. I want to be doing a road race going down mountains, or I want to be in a city center on a tight course like we had in Wauwatosa, Didi. That was one of the most, the coolest courses we have. I'm sure the boys said that. It's got a hill, but not too hard. It's got tight corners, downhills. I mean, there's no way that's not exhilarating to ride that race as a competitor, that course, right? It's not a four corner, big wide streets. That's like mountain biking. That's, and that's where I, as a cyclist, that's where I want to be. So I, I don't know, I, I like Harvey's a, a track cyclist. Dee did pursuit. 
I rode the track. That's my own view. But even in Europe, you know, velodrome racing has not really, hasn't gone anywhere since the six days, right? I mean, there are winter track leagues, but they really, they don't, they don't get much attention or people can't make a lot of money compared to the road, I guess. And that's, I don't know, to me, that's the beauty of cycling. Everything we've talked about, men, women, different surfaces, different events, short, there's so many ways to do cycling, you know? I've got my gravel bikes packed in the car. We're going up to uh, Cable tomorrow. Betsy and I are going up to Cable tomorrow to uh, ride bikes with uh, Jeff Bradley and his wife and some some other people on the 4th of July. You know, it's like cycling is, you can, it's so easy to do no matter what age you are and um, where you are, bike packing, mountain bike. But Ashland, you know, again, it goes back to Grace uh, Arnenson, who won the green green jersey at Toad, wore it for all 11 days. Like, that's where her, her drive is right now on the road. She's going to, I'm sure, dedicate herself. She can't, she doesn't have time to switch. She's probably 20, 24 to pursue mountain bike because she's focused 100% on learning the road as quick as she can and probably making that going for the national team, I would think. But she's just started. It's just like Ashlyn wants to do whatever he wants to do in this this Riley Reitzman, you know, the, the guy that was supposed to go to the mountain bike camp. You know, there's so many ways you can pursue uh, cycling. Yeah. Hey, Tom, I'd love to get your opinion on this because you have such a rich history in the sport of cycling. What are your thoughts more generally about the evolution of pro cycling right now and teams in the sport? Like we're seeing a lot of younger guys in the sport getting contracts really young, but also producing really exciting races. I'd be curious just to get your take on kind of how things are are evolving, both for males and females in terms of the professionalization and the teams, the team structures. Yeah, I mean, I have to look at the men's side of the sport and management of those teams because I do look think about that relative to my own experience and how you spend your money, where you put your direction. And on the men's side, young talent is the new thing, right? And locking up young talent like Ashland, like the teams with the most money try to put them in their farm system, so to speak, to use a, a baseball acronym. And yes, it's hard to compete. I don't know how we, we how we how you get that out of the professional sport unless you have a, a severe salary cap, right? You know, how do you how do you try to equalize the teams? Like baseball, you know, all the teams are equal on there's some sort of formula that that, you know, that, that tries to equalize the uh, the payrolls of those teams. I can't see that in cycling for a long time. On the women's side, I, I actually think, you know, the best riders will get plucked by the best teams. And that always goes on on the men's side and the women's team. But in the women's side, it's more of a, a linear, if you do well on a small team, you're going to get picked up by a Dutch team or Trek Segafredo or one of the better women's teams. So you can see more of a, a straight line. But now... You know, the depth, and every year the women's depth is growing. Uh, the teams are growing. Um, like we talked about earlier, return on investment, I think, is unless you've got, you know, $40 million plus to spend on a, a road team, your women's, and depending on your product you're trying to promote, it might be your best investment. So we're seeing a lot of teams. I mean, Trek Segafredo, they love their women's team. They they It's probably been the better the better growth area for them, but they don't want to ignore the men's side. And you have to look at teams that have both men and women to really understand. And Saturn was an example of that. Probably our best value dollar for dollar was on the women's team. And, and we weren't even paying the men. We weren't in the global salary league, you know, on the men's salaries or the women's. Well, the women's we were because we were paying as, as well as anyone back then, you know, because there weren't, the opportunities that there are now for female cyclists on the road. Yeah, it sort of looks like there are kind of two, three teams on both the men's and the women's side of the sport dominating right now. And it, it seems like that's budget and organization, team structure, infrastructure related. I was just thinking about that as you're you're saying that, Tommy. I thinking back on Saturn, you provided us with that infrastructure because you had, you know, you had Swaniers for us, you had nutritionists for us. And I think that's something that was, I mean, to me, kind of before it's time. Yeah. I mean, we did what we could to provide the most comprehensive platform of 
you know, wraparound care, whether it's, uh, like you mentioned, massage or nutrition or media training, and hopefully take the burden off of worrying about plane tickets and things like that. So you guys could concentrate on your training, um, not have to work, hopefully, and concentrate on your racing. And that's the same whether you're a male or a female. We try to equalize all that. Another example is uh, our bike components company at the time with Saturn said, okay, we'll send you um, X number of uh, Durace Grupos for the men and X number of Ultegra for the women. I said, no, they get the same thing. Figure it out, you know, because that's a small thing, but it means a lot, right, in providing that equal coverage. So I hope we did that across all the things that we provided. And Didi pointed out, except on the salary side, because, again, you know, to do your your job for return on investment for the sponsors, you pay you pay what the market will bear, you know, for salaries. Tom, having run so many successful teams, I'm sure you had lots of riders coming to you wanting to be on your teams. And so kind of for those young riders, those young female riders that are looking to get their foot in the door, either on a domestic or international pro team, do you have any suggestions? Because I think sometimes that can be really challenging. Yeah, um, that might be the three things that you could recommend. And from the management side, if my team directors were comfortable with those conversations, I wanted them to be the ones to select and do those negotiations if they were comfortable doing it, because they're the direct line between someone's livelihood, you know, and they have more than impact on how the team behaves, right? So I would do it. Some managers weren't as comfortable with doing those things. But as it relates to, um, you know, the cyclist, it, we talked about it, you know, what, what my recommendations were. We talked about, you know, follow your passion. You know, if you're way more attractive as a as talent and a rider, as a representative of any team when you're you're engaged and passionate. Just don't go where you think that's where you should go. And even if it means, you know, you can make more money on the road, but you want to do mountain bike or you could make more money in mountain bike and you want to do the road, follow your passion. And then look for solid mentors. Like I know Didi had and Julie, I can't say who your mentors were, but um, I know Didi had some pretty solid mentors along the way and look for those mentors at any stage of your career. And you may not find those mentors within that team you're racing for. It may be outside that team, but those people are very valuable for perspective and, of course, have the, the wisdom of experience, those mentors. And then the other is just make sure you have a good support network wherever you may be, whether it's at home, friends, teammates, whatever that is, because there's always going to be setbacks and always going to be some hard times, injuries and that kind of thing. So make sure you're going to be able to get through those things. And uh, that support network could come from within your team, and often it comes from outside of the team that are fellow cyclists or not cyclists. So those are sort of my three things. That's really helpful. They're really good tidbits of advice. That was another episode of Fast Talk Femme. Subscribe to Fast Talk Femme wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk Femme are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback and any thoughts you have on topics or guests that may be of interest for you. Get in touch via social. You can find Fast Talk Labs on Twitter and Instagram at Fast Talk Labs, where you'll also find all of our episodes. You can check them out on the web at fasttalklabs.com. For Tom Schuler and Julie Young, I'm Dee Dee Barry. Thank you for listening.